0: Well, good morning. Great to be with you this morning. If you brought your Bible, open yours with me to Revelation chapter 14, the 14th chapter in the book of the Revelation. And I would like to begin our time by reading verses 6 through 11, 6 through 11. John writes, and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another second one followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire fire and brimstone, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This morning, three angels want to preach to us one gospel. Last week, our focus, you may recall, was primarily on verse 1, those words, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. And we now know three truths about those words. Number one, his standing on Mount Zion is a reference to his second coming. Number two, the word Zion is a euphemism for Israel and Jerusalem. And number three... When Jesus comes and stands on Mount Zion, he comes to save Israel. Paul writes, Romans 11 and 26, all Israel will be saved when the Deliverer comes to Zion. Now why did I take us back to last week's lesson? This week's lesson. What if I told you the second coming, verse 1, is inseparable from the gospel, verses 6 through 11. Let me give you a couple examples. 2 Peter 3 and 4, where is the promise of his coming? 2 Peter 3 and 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. is a critical part of the Gospel. Mark 1, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the Gospel of God, saying, repent and believe in the Gospel. Peter began, where is the promise of his coming? He ended with repentance. We cannot separate the second coming of Jesus Christ from the Gospel message. Revelation 1, five through six, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That's the gospel. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And we cannot talk about the gospel message without talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, where he died and shed his blood to provide atonement and forgiveness for our sins. But listen to the very next verse, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That's not the rapture. That's the second coming. Acts 3 and 19. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now there's the gospel. Repent, so that your sins may be wiped away. But then listen to the next verse, verse 20, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. That's the second coming prior to Jesus ushering in the kingdom. You may also recall our Lord's disciples came to him in Matthew 24 asking, What is the sign of your coming? And Jesus proceeded to unfold many signs associated with the Great Tribulation, the very time frame we find ourselves in our study right here in the Revelation, specifically chapter 14. But listen carefully to what precedes his second coming. Matthew 24 and 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. replete throughout the New Testament is the inseparable link between the second coming and the gospel. And right here in Revelation 14 is the fulfillment of Matthew 24 and 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to all the nations. John writes in verse 6, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation. Notice in verse 7, the angel calls out with a loud voice. Why special attention made to the word loud? All the nations need to hear the gospel. Now get this, all at once, for one last time. Now, what gospel will these angels preach? Do they preach God loves you? I know that's the popular gospel that is preached today. And look, it is true. God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I do not in any way deny that that is part of the gospel. But that's not, what, that's not the one we hear. Not here. Verse 7, we need to hear fear God and give him glory. We don't hear fear in the gospel a whole lot, do we? Could it be because we don't hear much about the second coming either? Acts 17, 30 and 31, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Another passage where the gospel and the second coming come together. Everyone should repent. That's the gospel. Jesus is coming where? He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And When Jesus returns to earth, he returns as judge. Matthew 25, 31 and 32, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. That's the whole world at that time. Matthew 25 and 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, persecuted Jewish believers, even the least of them, you did it to me. What you do to Israel, you do to God. Then he will also say to those on his left, listen, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will say to some, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. When Jesus returns to earth, he returns as judge. Fearing God is synonymous with believing in God. Exodus 14 and 31, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. If you've been with us through this entire book thus far, you would have to conclude the unbelieving world in Revelation 14 has seen enough of the great power of God to both fear and believe the gospel. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, half the world has died, devastation to water, food, land, the two witnesses raised from the dead, plenty of reason to fear and believe. The Bible repeatedly calls the people, excuse me, to fear God. In Psalm 111 and 10, the psalmist declared that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How do we know we have a wise fear? Well, let us develop that answer, because the answer is the same for both believer and unbeliever alike. Proverbs 23 and 17 commands, live in the fear of the Lord always, not sometimes, always always. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. We ought to live in that reality. Live. How we live determines if we have a wise fear. What do we mean by how we live? Well, Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. A biblical view of fear affects how we walk. We walk in his ways, how we love. We love him with our all. How do we serve? We, we serve God with our time, our money, our abilities, our spiritual gifts. We keep the commandments of God. How we live determines if we have a wise fear. By the way, I wonder if you heard how Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13 ended. Let me read it again quickly. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. It is good to live with a wise fear. It's for our good. Fear is good when it is accompanied by a real repentance that really changes how we live, how we think, when our innermost affections find themselves loving God with our all. I remind you when Paul preached the gospel to Felix in the book of Acts, he preached righteousness. That's about how that's all about sin and how we live. And he preached about the judgment to come. That's the second coming. And the text says Felix became frightened. Frightened. What should we be frightened of? What should man be frightened of? Matthew 10 and 28, Jesus warned do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The ultimate fear is hell. I wonder if you saw hell in the gospel. And I might add, we seldom hear much about hell in the gospel, but what about right here in chapter 14? Well, look at verses 9 and 11 again. Then another angel, a third one, followed him, saying, With a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Three angels are preaching one gospel in chapter 14. The first angel in verse 7 added to fearing God, men are to give him glory. Do we hear this in our gospel these days? Fearing God, giving God glory, hell. Paul writes in the Roman epistle, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Don't miss that. Miss what? Can't separate fear and glory from sin. Or to put it another way, can't separate fear and glory from how we live, how we walk, how we serve, how we love God. The first angel in verse 7 gives the world reason to worship God. Notice, him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. I began to think, how creation, how creation ought to result in worship, creation ought to result in fear, creation ought to result in living right all to the glory of God. Into the gospel comes the second angel. We need another angel to explain. The angel's stern warning is that the creator is the judge. Verse 8, and another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Unlike the first angel, this angel adds to the good news of the gospel, the bad news of judgment. If you pay careful attention to how the gospel is preached in the Bible, it is always a good news, bad news message. John 3 and 16, the one we know best, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's good news that God loved us. That's good news that God gave us his only begotten son. It's good news that if we believe, we will not perish. And it's great news that we will have eternal life. But just two verses later, bad news. John 3 and 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God bad news. The gospel is a good news, bad news message. And it's a good news, bad news message frequently in the Bible in very close proximity. Can't get much closer than John 3.16 to John 3.18. Can't get much closer to what we're reading in Revelation 14 verses 6, right on through 11. Verse 8, fallen, fallen. The word peep to appears many times in this book. It speaks to falling under the wrath of God. Revelation 16 and 19, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The nations fall, peep to, into the fierce wrath of God. The third angel, like the first angel, delivers his warning with a loud voice. Did you see that in verse 9? Notice again the third angel has a loud voice. Now why, again, am I drawing our attention to an angel with a loud voice? God not only wants his gospel preached loudly, but also his judgment and hell in the gospel preached loudly. The tense of the verb in verse 10 be tormented," It speaks of unendless and unbearable pain. We ought, to, we ought to talk about this loudly. Luke 16, 23 and 24 in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. The torment is so horrific that constant thirst is unending and unbearable. Verse 10, fire and brimstone. People don't like fire and brimstone preaching anymore. We have so sentimentalized the gospel. We have so sentimentalized God It's a message of the past. And we come to another subject matter rarely heard in the gospel, don't we? This angel would strongly disagree with those who deny the eternality of hell in the gospel message. Why is God preaching the gospel again? Why did I ask that? Well, he's preached it before in the Revelation. And what have I been keeping before us for a couple of months now? I don't see any new believers. I see believers. I don't see any new believers. So, so why preach? You may recall, after God poured out his wrath back in Revelation 9, we read in Revelation nine twenty and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, Did not repent of the works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of the stone and of the wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. God pours out his wrath. He calls for man to repent. They don't repent. What about in Revelation 14? Did they repent? not according to Revelation 16. Revelation 16 and 9, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. What did the first angel preach in the gospel? Fear God and give him glory. If you were scorched with fierce heat by God pouring out his wrath, and he's giving you another chance to repent. Would you repent? Would you fear God and repent? We like to think we would. But why do I believe if not for the sovereign mercy and grace and election of God on all our lives that chose us from the beginning of the world for salvation, we would be just like them? In Revelation sixteen nine and 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Instead of God's wrath leading them to repentance, it leads them to blaspheme him. To blaspheme the name of God is to insult him with our lips. How did they insult God? How did they blaspheme the name of God? The creator, who is the judge, who is in total control and sovereignly in control over everything that is occurring on earth, they proceed with the ultimate blasphemy. Revelation 13 and 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, listen to what they said, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Can you imagine saying to God, God, You're nothing like the Antichrist. You could never wage war with the Antichrist and win. You're not even close to him. It's the equivalent of saying, God, the Antichrist is greater than you, more powerful than you. You are no match for his power, the ultimate blasphemy to suggest God is less than anyone So why is God preaching the gospel again to people that continue to insult him, blaspheme him, refuse his forgiveness? I see two answers to that question. God is being God. God is a merciful God, a gracious God, a long-suffering God. He's a forgiving God. And despite man's persistence to sin and reject the gospel, he continues to preach it. But, you know, the spirit won't strive with man forever. And we're getting very close to forever in Revelation 14. Romans 1, 20 and 21, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Or even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. It's like those lepers that were healed. They all knew who healed them, but they they didn't honor Jesus. They didn't give Him thanks. It's all there, you know. You say, What's all there? God made the invisible visible, his power, all the wrath, all the thunder, protecting the 144,000, raising two witnesses from the dead. God is creator over his creation, he is king over his creation. And God makes it so that man has no excuse. No excuse. You know, creation doesn't lead people to believe. Creation condemns because creation's ultimate priority is to prove to man just who God is and who they are. Paul said they knew God and they did, you know. Revelation 6, 16 and 17, and they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him. Who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They knew who they were hiding from. They knew it was the Lamb. They knew they could not stand, and yet they still refuse to repent. They are without excuse. So, what do we learn this morning? Three angels preach one gospel, rarely preached these days. Three angels deliver God's last call to repentance before the final seven bold judgments fall and the Lord Jesus Christ returns. There is perhaps no clearer illustration in Scripture of John 3 and 19. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Well, like every lesson, I want to conclude with the gospel. It's good news, but it's bad news. The good news is God loves you. God sent his son to die on a cross for your sins. Speaking of sin, sin is a bad news subject. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we fall short of the glory of God? Well, Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. James says, if you keep the whole law, 613 laws, and you stumble in one point, you are guilty of all. The law, the law's demand is perfection. That's bad news. Back to the good news. Jesus, a perfect Savior, sinless, without sin, died for imperfect people like you and I. If we would only repent and believe the gospel, if we would only repent and change our mind from believing I can save myself by being good, to realizing that only God is good. We are saved by grace through faith. Repent. But, you know, repentance is not just a call to change what you believe about who Jesus is. And by the way, who is he? Well, he's the eternal son of God, and therefore he is God. He was born of a virgin, had a real human body like yours and mine. But at the same time, really God, really God, and really man. But we are also to change our mind about what we believe about who he is. He's the son of God. Lived a sinless life. Died on a cruel cross for us. Rose on the third day and he's coming again. But repentance also calls for a change in how we live, how we behave. I read just moments ago back in, Revelation 9, that they would not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immorality, their thefts. That's about how we behave. That's about how we live. Living in the fear of the Lord, adding glory to fear is about how we live. Repent. You know, if you want to learn more about repentance, click on the link that will take you to our live Zoom meetings at Living Word Bible Church, I'd love to have a conversation with you. May God bless you, and may God bless his word.